0: All right, welcome back to another episode of Backlash Podcast. This week we are going to have on Hinterland, musky Guides, DJ Chapita and Jerome Watachek. Hopefully I pronounced both of those names correctly. Not exactly the easiest ones to pronounce, but, you know, we're into April now. I think by the time this podcast comes out, we're almost mid-April, if I'm not mistaken. The weather here, at least in Wisconsin, is very nice. Brad still lives in the frozen tundra, so it's nice, but not quite as nice. And at this point now, it's essentially like full steam ahead to musky season for those of us that have seasons. There's, uh, you know, for me, show season's behind me. Most of the inventory that we had at shows is online. Not all of it is. We're still working on some stuff. Uh, The vacation is out of the way. And, uh, you know, here we go. The next, next stop is Southern Wisconsin musky opener for, you know, me and a lot of anglers in Wisconsin. Of course, there's tons of anglers right now that are out there enjoying the outdoors and out there fishing. And we're very, still very jealous, but we're inching that much closer. And Brad, I mean, you guys still have a little ways to wait. So I'm assuming you're just going to hit the road here pretty quick and you're going to go find a uh, muskie adventure somewhere else.
1: You're right, I am about a week out, Jeff, and uh, I will be going south. I am ready. You know, it's funny for me. I, I hear all these different people talking all the time,
2: and they're all whining about winter, blah, blah, blah. I will be honest. I mean, this winter has been it's been over the top, to say the least, right?
1: But at the end of the day, we've been busy in the shop, like you said, doing shows and what have you, getting these spring orders out. So honestly, I mean, I, I walked from the house to the shop. And that's my day. So the the weather outside, it can be kind of uh, frightful. As long as I'm not having to plow snow, I'm not out in it. I'm ready now. You know, it's funny. I kind of switch gears once most of the spring orders have uh, been shipped
2: out of the shop. And it's time to go to work and start fishing again.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I was was sending text messages to Carrie recently about weather. And she sends me the 10-day forecast for where you live. And I sent her the 10-day forecast for where I am. And like, I think that I live in the North and you guys absolutely live in the North. Like today, for example, it's Monday, a couple days before this podcast comes out. I think it was like 75 here where I was. And what'd you say it was like 55 where you were?
1: Uh, Maybe 55, 52, 53, something like that. So, I mean, it's been a couple nice three, four warm days. I'm not going to complain at all. The snow is melting. It's going to take a little time because it's plenty deep. And it's going to probably take more time to get these lakes to just finally melt off. But ultimately, we're on track now.
0: Well, it's funny because I was in South Carolina last week and it was, you know, like 80 or whatever, almost every single day. We went to the beach. We went to, you know, hung out by my uh, my brother-in-law lives down there, we went hung out by his pool. And, I'm, you know, and we did played a little pickleball. Yeah, fat 47-year-old guy or 46, however old I am. He can still play pickleball. I mean, I dominated that stuff. But anyway, it's... Um, you know, and I'm going to myself like, why does anybody live in Wisconsin? And then I see your 10-day forecast, and I wonder, you know, why does anybody live in Minnesota? But there must be some advantages somewhere.
1: <laughs> well, when you figure them all out, let me know. I <laughs> guess uh, you know the beauty of it is, is that
2: we do have nice summers, and we get to fish. You can't complain about that, right? Absolutely. Yep. So it's good
0: times. Like I said, we're 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 geared up now. We're we're uh, full steam ahead. This is there's no more uh, interruptions. It'll be musky season here in Wisconsin before you know it. In fact, we should probably maybe consider, you know, finding a couple guests to talk about Southern Wisconsin. I don't know. We'll have to dig something up and lots of, uh, lots of stuff going on around here. So we'll have to. Put our brains together and, and uh, come up with a guess for that. But we have a, you know, we have a couple good guests this week, and you know, we're gonna still bring some content. Hope you, hopefully, you guys will be able to catch a few more fish this year. You know, if you're needing gear for this year and you're you're on the water already, or you're you know, you're gonna be shortly, don't overlook TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. That's your source for all sorts of custom musky gear. You know, we have many many items that uh, you can only find at team Rhino Outdoors and at teamrhinooutdoors.com. And then if you, you know, when you get done shopping with us, or maybe even you're going to go over there first, go check out muskymayhemtackle.com. Brad, what do you guys have to offer?
1: Uh, Pretty much anything when it comes to bladed baits. So any kind of inline spinner, safety pin style spinners, uh, we carry them. We're the originals with big blades, the originals with flashaboo, and we appreciate all the different business and like anything else, you can go right to Team Rhino Outdoors as well and find our product. So, a couple different options there. We'd love to have you as a customer, and we'd love to see what you're doing with our baits. Show us some pictures of some fish.
0: All right, Brad, let's make this one short and sweet, let's jump on the uh, line and, and talk to DJ and Jerome. All right, our guests this week are DJ Chapita and Jerome Watacheck with Hinterland Muskie Guides and for listeners you get bonus points if you can spell either one of those two last names i had a hard enough time pronouncing them let alone spelling them so if you can spell either one of them just send me an email podcast at gmail.com and you get bonus points you won't win anything but we'll just do it for fun um guys i want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule i know up north where uh, you guys are at there isn't much else to do aside from watch snow melt because it's finally warm and i'm assuming the snow is finally melting so Thank you guys very much for taking time out of your schedule to come talk to us tonight.
3: Oh, thanks. Thanks yeah. for having us. No problem, Jeff. Yeah.
0: All right. So we've never had either of you two on a podcast. In fact, I think this is probably the first time we've ever had a DJ and probably the first time we've ever had a Jerome on the podcast. So let's uh, go down that route for a minute. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the hinterland muskie guides. Let's talk about what got you guys into muskie fishing. Maybe how the two of you are connected because, kind of, you know, let's give us a little background.
1: All right, well, I guess I'm DJ. I kind of grew up coming up to uh, Northwoods, of Wisconsin. I lived in central Wisconsin, uh, born and raised, and grandparents had a cottage up in uh, north central Wisconsin and spent a lot of summer days coming up. And probably the first time I ever got to go muskie fishing was uh, when I was 17. Um, most of my family was more of the uh, meat fishermen, more than uh, trophy fishermen. So we were sitting around the cabin one night, And uh, grandpa asked if I wanted to go musky fishing. So we took the old fish and ski boat out, and the biggest spinning rod and reel we could find with some 40 pound mono and went out. And lo and behold, we went onto the first rock bar, no trolling motor, no electronics. And I caught a 46 inch musky first, (laughs) within 15 minutes of being out there. And ever since then, I was kind of hooked. I actually ended up moving to uh, the south a while after uh spent about 20 years in north carolina and south carolina worked for a race team for a number of years there and kind of my off seasons i got back into muskie fishing and that down there on some of the rivers and that and really got back into it and hooked and started doing a little bit of guiding there and lo and behold life kind of got uh got older in that and Got married, had a couple of kids, and we loved coming back up to Northern Wisconsin on vacations. And 2020, we decided to make Northern Wisconsin our home again and moved back up here. and shortly after that, I started getting into the muskie fishing up here really heavy, and kind of got with uh, Jerome, who's actually my brother-in-law, and started taking family and friends out and kind of built this whole guiding thing up along the way.
0: So you started off with a 46-inch muskie right off the bat. That's what I gathered from that story? 15 minutes into it. (laughs) Working
1: a suik that I have no idea how to work in, literally, on some 20-year-old mono (laughs) spinning rod and reel that was in the uh, quintessential Northwoods cabin basement.
0: So you're one of those guys that has nowhere to go but down, essentially. I mean, 46 isn't like a... It's not like a true giant, but it is a very, very nice fish for your first one. So at that point, you're like, oh, this is pretty easy. 15 minutes in, 10, 000, fish with 10,000 casts? I don't think so.
1: took roughly 20 years to get back to that number. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> There we go. That's more like it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I got praise early and a lot of defeat after.
0: Well, these fish always
3: have a way of humbling you, you know? Exactly, exactly.
0: And Jerome, let's, uh, let's kind of get your story on this one.
3: So yeah, my story kind of starts off just like DJ's. I would come up here with my family camping every summer, twice a summer. We stayed about a week every time we came up. And my family was just like his meat fishermen. So but I always was after the bigger fish. Even time even if we would go out, I'd try to cast for northern and stuff. And then I just got kinda hooked on I got my first muskie rod when we came up and started casting. And of course my dad never brought a musky net or even bought a net big enough. So I actually never landed a muskie those few years we were up here when I was old enough to fish for them. But uh, the one thing that got me hooked for my entire life to muskie fishing is one of those years we went to Canada and we were out fishing and not knowing what I'm doing, throwing a bobby bait, kind of just like DJ Suick. Working it in, and I end up hooking a giant, like, 50, probably back then I didn't really know, you know, sizes, but it is easily a four footer, if not 50 plus, got it up to the boat a few times and then ended up bending a hook and getting off. And that uh, fish haunted me for the rest of the trip, because we saw it two or three more times with other people in the boat. And pretty much from that point on, muskie was basically the only fish I ever really had an interest from going forward. And, you know, I went to, when ended up going off to college, getting a degree, degree marrying dj's sister we moved with her and i wanted to live up in the northwoods we moved up to the northwoods and started our lives up here kind of started the same thing i love muskie fishing so i kept fishing started to take out friends and family getting them their first muskies and you know it kind of really dawned on me when i got a couple of my friends like their first muskie seeing how excited i was for getting them their first muskies and their their first base muskie and they kind of just like done, I mean, like I should probably start doing some guiding because I actually get more enjoyment out of seeing other guys catch fish, especially like their first fish and their biggest fish. You know, that's to me, that's like what drives me to bring clients out. So I just kind of started growing my, you know, my list of guys that were coming up and and just kind of putting my name out there. And then a few year, year, years after that, DJs moved back up. So he started like getting into it. So we're just like, why don't we just join forces and kind of do it together. And that's kind of where we're at right now.
0: So for listeners, where are some places that you guys typically guide? Like which area in Wisconsin are you out of all the time?
1: We're based out of Inakua is where we both live. So we do pretty much anywhere in Oneida, Vilas, a little bit of Iron, a little bit of Price County.
0: Okay. So you guys, you know, cover a great, a great area of Northern Wisconsin. So if, you know, if somebody's staying almost anywhere up there, I mean, within, you know, I mean, there's t- tons of places within an hour drive. You guys would probably cover within that, that range.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, most area around there, one of us too has been on it, been on it a couple times, fished it a couple times. Nice thing about both of us being, working together is, is if one of us hasn't been on that lake and we got to go, the other one's probably been there. So we can kind of divide and conquer on that. But yeah, any of these lakes up here, we've got uh, quite a few in our back pocket.
0: And then the guiding thing, is that what you guys do? You know, is your full time job, or do either of you have, you know, jobs outside of guiding?
1: I have a full time job, Jerome as well, but uh, our jobs are pretty flexible. So we're able to take clients out uh, most of the time with, we can work with them throughout dates, but we do both work. uh, Our scheduled jobs are usually four days a week, but we have some nice bosses that kind of let us work around that a little bit as well during musky season
3: yeah and that that's kind of why you know joining forces makes that you know having two guys with part- time jobs that are both flexible, and then having two guys you know pick up dates it makes us pretty flexible and you know when people call up and try to book stuff we're pretty flexible either him or i can and can take them out in the time frame they they have available
0: and if somebody's looking to get more information on your guide service or get in touch with you guys, how do they go about doing that?
1: Um, You can go on to, uh, we got a website, com. We're on Facebook, Instagram, under the same platforms. Also, uh, you can call me or text me. My number is 704-658-5230, or Jerome's
3: is 715-892-3847.
0: Hey, Brad, you know, I was just thinking, it must be nice to have bosses that let you get out and go fishing once in a while, huh?
2: You know, it's crazy. I, I never get along with my boss. (laughs)
1: <laughs> is
3: that, is i that think that you carries don't get not on the podcast right now that's what i was gonna say is no it's not carrie i am the boss
2: <laughs> that's
0: just because she's it's in texas
3: right now
2: uh, uh, no you know it, it's uh it's probably a struggle on who gets to do what there I'm, i've seen it work but you know And in a lot of cases, when guys are guiding together like that, you know, it kind of gets to be competitive to a certain degree too, right? So you end up having, uh, well, who's taking this guy? How come you're getting this trip and I didn't get the, you know what I mean, back and forth? How do you guys manage that?
1: Right now, we kind of do it as, you know, the biggest question, you know, we ask the client is if they, how they got referred to us as the first one. Because if, you know, one of us had a client that referred to them, whatever, we go that way. Otherwise, right now, it's as basic as next man up. Kind of just do a flip-flop, and if the dates work for that person, we go. Nice thing is, is we are related as well, so our wives keep us in check, so we're not allowed to you know, beat each other up over a guy trip.
2: Yeah, that's probably pretty smart. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know Jerome, but I know you. So, I mean, I, I don't think they come any nicer than you, DJ. So, fortunately, I think Jerome's in good hands that way. I'm, I'm guessing that goes both ways, though.
1: Well, well, I appreciate that, Brad. And if you know how big I am, Jerome's four and a half inches taller than I am. So I don't really have a chance. I mean, the guy played four years at Stevens Point College Basketball. I I don't really have a shot against him.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's good stuff. Well, after the Milwaukee show, I got to know you pretty well there, DJ. And, and, or excuse me, the Minnesota show. And uh, I will say that I truly enjoyed the time with you. You're definitely passionate about this sport. I'm guessing Jerome is as well. You know, what is driving you guys to to really want to go do this? You kind of made mention of it. You know, you really like to watch people catch fish. And I think that's a big component to the whole guide game. Absolutely. But what else kind of drives you in this whole thing?
1: Um, I mean, the biggest thing is, is, I mean, I don't, I, I love apex predators. I used to, I mean, I still deer hunt a bunch and turkey hunt and that, but There's something about, you know, going out. It's the whole game. It's not just catching the fish. It's the whole start from getting the boat hooked up to the truck to putting the fish in the net. There's something about that whole game and that whole aspect of the work you put in before, the work you put in during, and the work you put in after that really, for some reason, drives me. I mean, it's it's not for everybody. I mean, if I wanted to catch 50 fish, this is not the this is not the sport to do it but there's something that you know you can hang your hat on when you're either fishing by yourself or taking a client out when you put in the work you know the hours before the hours during and getting getting that result of success it's, there's there's a high from it that I don't I don't know if you can do another thing other fishing other sports like that so and Brad as you know I kinda, I was in the racing deal and that with Pick crew and that, and there's that adrenaline rush
3: you get from certain things like that. It's definitely it's a it's a fun thing when it happens. For me, you know the so I kind of like follow suit with what DJ was saying too. It, you know the, the whole aspect of the just the whole the whole day leading up to it. It's it's just a cool event. You know it's like you go out fishing. It's if if somebody goes out with you and you, it's all to them, it's all about the catch. They're missing out on a whole aspect of the the day that you know, they really need to take in to take, to take an account for like how well musky fishing, you know, as a, as a whole can really grab your attention. Um, there's all kinds of aspects of, of outside the catch that I don't know, to me, I love like jotting down and taking notes of like small things. And, and I, and it might come back to, I, you know, I went to school at Stevens point for natural resources so I have that conservation kind of background. And, and I love the, the aspect of, of musky fishing where you're going out there catching these fish and then you're releasing them, and then you can go back there that, that, that later that summer or the next day, next year, and be like, huh, I bet this fish is still here. And you, know, you either see them or catch them again. And that, that to me is so cool that you can catch and release these fish and just keep that memory going for yourself or even your clients or somebody, even your kids. Like I take on my kids a lot. My daughter's caught several muskies, and she's all about like, the catch and release. And that aspect of the, the, the sport really gravitates my attention. For sure, guys. I mean, that's part
2: of this whole thing, right? It's a process, and I think a lot of times the process can be just as fun as it is for catching fish, right? So, exactly. What, are you guys bouncing around a lot, lake to lake? I mean, where are you getting most of your clients? Is it is it driven through um, the social media side, or is it more so? Are you working with resorts? How does how does that all kind of line up for you?
1: Um, right now, I mean, since I just kind of gotten up here, Jerome has kind of been doing, you know, some of the word of mouth and that. And when we combined, we started actually, you know, we decided we want to do this. We started actually driving the business, you know, website, social media and stuff. So, you know, we're we're trying to, we both are building this flow as we want this to kind of be a retained thing as, you know, we want to do this more and more as, you know, we get on in life a little bit here. and kids get older and we can kind of have a little bit more leeway and everything. So, but yeah, I mean, between social media, word of mouth, you know, we, we, we love having clients now. We're not booking a hundred trips, you know, a year between the two of us. We're, we're booking enough trips to where we can build our client book with the right clients and give each client the time that we want, that they need and feel like that they deserve.
2: Definitely something that uh, you have to consider. I mean, if you're on track with your clients, you're only gonna make it a better experience. Exactly. Yeah.
3: You know, the other thing that kind of, uh, we get some clients from up here and it's, I, I think it's a, a, a staple tool, like our, our community up here in Monaco is like, we have a lot of business friends and stuff like that that run businesses and stuff in the area they're always throwing our name out to their clients and stuff like that. So that's kind of where I've actually got over the last year before kind of DJ came up here is a lot of my clients were relate, were, um, you know, references from, you know, local business guys that I know of, you know, to just throw my name out there and taking guys out that way. So it's really neat to just be part of your community. You know, that's a kind of a thing. If people are looking to start up a guide service like, Go to some local businesses and, and, you know, reach out to those guys. And it might not even be a business where fishermen are going, but, you know, like real estate office or me and DJ are actually kind of lucky. We got some really good friends that are in some bigger, bigger spots of dentists, eye doctors and stuff like that. They have some good clientele that are looking to go out. So that helps us quite a bit. We get get in business, but um, those are kind of some, some spots that I think people don't look for when you're looking for clients that we kind of benefit on.
2: Yeah, Chamber of Commerce, I mean, there's a ton of different things. I always say, you know, it could be the alternative to the golf game. You know, everybody wants to do a golf game meeting or whatever, but honestly, I mean, monkey fishing is a prime example of uh, making an alternative that uh, not many people probably think about, you know, as far as the guiding side of things.
1: Exactly. And that's actually a cool thing Like me and Jerome actually offer on our website, and that is... We can do multi-boat trips, which we can get larger groups out, which is kind of a cool thing that uh, we offer that so a lot of your individual guys in that have a little bit more of a struggle doing is we can go out, have two boats, we can get a group of guys, and, you know, we can even do a lake hop. We've done it before. We're do a lake hop where we can go stop. Those guys can all stop somewhere, have lunch. We can regroup and then get back out in the afternoon, and they can have kind of one of those team-building exercises where, like you said, not at the golf course, but something different.
2: Who would want to go golfing anyway? No, I can't chase a (laughs) ball. I always (laughs) call it faster (laughs) pool.
1: That's great. I'm going to use that one. That's definitely maybe my new key one.
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, that's pretty much what it is, right? So exactly.
0: All right, guys. I know that uh, you know we covered the guide service end of this thing pretty well, and you know one of the things is it's finally getting warm. I mean, we're into almost mid-April already. Time flies when you're having fun. But anyways, let's talk about preseason prep. You know, a lot of our our anglers. I mean, the Southern Wisconsin guys. They're only gonna be maybe like three weeks away now from starting up their season. So. know everything's like full steam ahead let's talk about you know some options you guys have or a checklist that you have of things you want to you know make sure are in tip-top shape before you hit the water
1: i guess i'll start i always start with you know right now like i said we've got frozen water and a bunch of snow on the ground so there's a lot of things we can be doing so when it's warm outside and first thing i do is the basics you know your boat prep i mean I don't know how many people don't charge batteries and stuff throughout the off season, you know, charging those batteries, checking, making sure all, all your batteries with all these electronics and stuff you have on there. Now things have constant draws throughout, even when they're off, they're always drawing, getting all your batteries charged, checking bearings on trailers, tires, all your basic stuff like that, you know, getting your engine service, all these things are like, you know, basic things, but, any one of these things man will ruin the opener of muskie if you have any failures with just this basic stuff and jerome is more of the electronics guy between the twos and i can let him kind of fill you in on more what he does with all of our like electronics and stuff as far as graphs and
3: yeah so one of the you know things with with he's touched on batteries is uh and even if you charge in a more winter, you know, sometimes those batteries just get old and they, they won't last your season, but they might start the season out fine. But until you take a trip and also the next thing you know, your troll motors batteries are dying halfway through your trip. But one way I, I kind of alleviate that problem is like in the middle, beginning of the season, I just take a voltage regulator, put it on that battery. And if it doesn't show, you know, to 12.5 or 12.6, anything higher than that, that battery is basically to me, it's on its, way out and anytime that season that battery could take a crap and and next thing you know i'm running to the store to get new batteries you know that's one thing that i think people really definitely overlook I know how many times we're at bull launches people back their boats in and all you hear is turns over twice and then the battery's dead Mm -hmm. (laughs) so um, that's one way to alleviate that problem and then one of the other things with electronics is is in the off season it's a perfect time to download your updates for, like, we run a lot of Harman, Garmin, or DJ runs Garmin, I run Hummingbird, is download those software updates and update up, update your units. I don't know how many times I go out with some friends and they're like, oh, my Hummingbird just got a, these glitches, you know, it turns off randomly, or I just have, like, some fuzzy, you know, interference on my graph, and it's like, did you do your update? No, I bought it three years ago, and I haven't done a single update. I'm like, that's the first thing to do is, like, I, I believe that you keep that up to date and you, you're just going to have a lot less problems with those things as the season goes on. You know, another thing that I always check that I think is very overlooked is on your trolling motor, make sure you take that blade or your, your prop off and check underneath there for line. I don't know how many times I do it twice, if not three times a season. I almost do it before every time I take a big trip, I go up to Vermillion and go to Canada. It's like one of my things is I take that prop off and look for for line underneath there, and almost every single time there's some line underneath there. And I don't, when I'm fishing, I'm out pretty anal about checking stuff and listening for you know that blade hitting something weird, and I very rarely ever hear you know line going in there. But you're always picking it up. You know people break off all the time, so that that can easily throw out that seal. And once that seal's gone. That trolling motor motor is gonna you know take on some water and sooner or later it's gonna stop working on you. And That's an easy fix. Um, and then the one other little hit with the trolling motors is I always take armorall and armorall the shaft and you know the heads. It's a great lubricant and it doesn't hold d- dust, so um, keeps it nice and shiny and moves free for pulling it and deploying it. That's a that's a great way to kind of just make things run a little bit smoother. Uh, that's pretty much kind of the, the gist of the few electronic things I
2: can think of. So one thing that I also want to keep in, in mind every spring is checking the air pressure in the tires on the trailer, right? You know, when a, when a boat's just sitting in a garage or it's sitting outside in storage or whatever your storage situation is, definitely air pressure in your tires can be a really important thing. And I would think you'd know that one, DJ, like right off the top of your head since you come from the racing world. Come on.
1: I was a fueler, not a tire changer.
2: <laughs>
1: but I will I will say on this, like living up here, and I'm sure you've got the same beautiful roads that we have here in northern Wisconsin, is I also like to jack mine up and spin them. I think I'm good for about one a year of breaking belts and tires from potholes, and nothing will end your day faster than having a tire just blow out because a pothole broke all the belts inside of the tire, and your tire's now a donut instead of a nice round
2: piece of rubber. Yeah, absolutely. I, You know, over the years, I mean, I did this a long time, but I have fortunately not had too many kinds of issues, but when it happens, it's never, ever fun. That's for sure.
1: No, it never happens on a sunny 70 day when you're just got nothing better to do.
2: You're exactly right. The last time I had an incident, I ended up losing uh, my bearings in one of my axles. And of course it was pouring rain. So guess what? There I am laying on <laughs> the side of the road. No, um, I have it any other way <laughs> exactly Good times, right?
1: Oh, exactly they're always fun
2: <laughs> craziness well let's let's talk more about the gear side of things, you know, some of the prep that you're gonna do with your gear before the season starts.
1: oh uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, once again, it's all basic stuff, but it's like if if you don't go through your checklist, you're you're just wasting time on the water instead of fishing, and now is the time when the season isn't open up here in Northern Wisconsin to knock this stuff out. I mean, basic stuff. I take all my rods out. I cut, you know, check my line. Even if I'm not replacing the line, I mean, some of those brave guys don't fish as much. I'll, first thing I'll do is I'll spend 10 to 15 feet off of that line and just cut it. Usually that stuff's the stuff that's banging if you're in rocks, you know, in heavy weeds, it's getting frayed up and that. And 10 feet isn't going to change anything in your reel and in in that stuff. It's better to cut that off than have your first break of the season, you know, happen on a fish. Also, I swap all my leaders. Leaders, I use new leaders at the end of the season. Even if they only have one or two, to me, split rings and leaders, they're inexpensive insurance policies. I mean, you don't want to be losing, once again, you want to lose a fish on a leader you forgot that you ran, you fished the rocks all last season with, and you forgot about that and you're going out casting first fish of the year and snaps off because you didn't swap a $10 liter. Other than that, you know, basic oiling, if you don't send your reels in, you know, to get service, we both send ours in every year, but we also want more abuse on them. Do the simple oiling that uh, that they show you right in the handbook on them or the owner's manual. Wipe the rods down, uh, go with that. And I kind of let Jerome go over the, uh, the lure part of what we do. He's a little bit more... Uh, up to speed on the
3: uh preciseness of that yeah i'm just gonna throw one thing and i found out with reels if you go in my tackle boxes if you see me pull up my one of my tackle boxes you're gonna see a whole pile of q-tips in them and one of the things i found with reels is a great tool is a q-tips like i run real oil that's like a little bit thicker it's like on the verge of almost like a grease but it, they still call it a, a oil what i do is i just put take that q-tip out I I rub it on, you know, the worm gear and all that stuff before I put oil on it. And it just, like, picks up all those little pieces of of dirt and stuff that are going to end up in your gears anyways. And, you know, wipe it out. And then on the opposite side, I'll I'll throw a couple dabs of oil on there and do the same thing. And that's how I oil my reels up. And it's a great way to kind of clean them and oil them every time you're going to use them. Uh, Just a little tip out there for those. So I'll start with some of the, some of the tackle. Like one of the things he he touched on is, you know, we put new leaders on, but one of the other things is we all, we basically run welded rings on all our leaders. And then it's, we're on split rings on all of our baits. And one thing in the off season, and especially now that people have been at shows and stuff like buying all kinds of new baits, throwing them in their tackle boxes and they're getting ready to go fishing is like, If you run any of those, that type of system, like just get a couple packs of split rings and just start putting split rings on all your baits. You're going to have a lot less fatigue with that if you put your split ring on your bait first, and then you always have one on there, Uh, especially with some of these bigger baits that we've been using. You know, the eye where you attach the bait is pretty wide and we spin on a split ring and spin it off a few times. It, you know, puts stress on that that split ring and it kind of widens it a little bit and then next thing you know you go to a small bait and then that bait will actually walk itself out of that split ring sometimes when it's they're that stressed so that we i got a, i lost a few baits over the years doing that and now i just like put split rings on everything that way you don't have to even worry about that so you just take off the split ring and keep it right on the bait um and then the next thing is hook sharpening especially all those brand new baits you just bought like Take them out and just start filing them down. One thing I like to do is when you look at those baits, a lot of these big rubber baits run these hardened nickel. Um, they'll be like kind of a black, black treble hook, and those ones you actually got to take your time on because they're so hardened you can't actually get through that hardened stuff to get down to the metal to actually you know get a good hook sharpen on there. And I actually run two different files. I'll have like a more aggressive one and then a really nice fine one. You take that aggressive one first, knock it down, and then take that final one. And you can file those things real sharp. Uh you know, that, that is one of the I think the biggest thing that's really overlooked. I mean, I know we you listen to these podcasts and everybody harps about sharp hooks and stuff like that. But you know, when you take people out and they pull out their bait that they want to fish with, you know, if they brought their own little tackle box and their the hooks are never sharp. You know, they're sharp, they're factory bought hooks that are never seen a file and there's a big difference between a, a sharpened hook properly and, you know, the store-bought hook. There's, just, there's no comparison. And When you're trying to catch a fish of a lifetime, a few seconds of sharpening hook is a, is a big game-changer. Some of the other things I like to do this time of year is I'm, I'm a huge bait tinkerer. If you go in my tackle box, you're going to see a lot. I love crankbaits, um, especially spring. I love crankbaits, but... I pu- put weights on, I put hooks on. It's, it's hard this time of year. Well, here we got, hard, we got ice out yet to kind of play with those, but is a great time to play with some baits with switching out hooks. A lot of my bigger three treble hooks, crankbaits, you'll see is I got oversized treble hooks and I'm only running two treble hooks on them. Then I get rid of the center one, narrow two oversized ones. And to me, that, a lot of those baits have way better hookup. They actually have a lot better action too on some of them. Uh, and that, that's a, a perfect thing to try to do this time of season is, you know, play with their, your crankbaits with kind of adding stuff like that to them. A lot of my bucktails too, I add, you know, Kalen's grubs too. And during the season, that's one thing I kind of overlook is I get one ripped off and sometimes don't take time to put a new one on, but this time of year, i go through all my bucktails and I'll put Kalen grubs on the ends of them. And it's just an easy kind of thing to do this time of year, kill some time, sharpen the hooks and put Kalen's grubs on them i think that's kind of the the basic i don't know i don't know if there's anything more in depth that you want to go into but that's kind of like the basic things that we kind of do for some of the crankbaits and bucktails and kind of some baits that we kind of can alter this time of year before the season
0: i yep. think of one story about non-sharpening hooks that created a little bit of controversy on this podcast last year brad can you remember anything about that
3: yeah,
2: I do. You know, it's kind of a strange deal. But uh, when it comes to trolling, for whatever reason, uh, myself as well as Matt Seifert both agree on this, that uh, you do not want to sharpen your big trolling baits. It, it really dumb me. But I will honestly say it has made a difference in my boat. I started losing quite a few fish. I was using the um, the Phantom Hex bait. And it's a heavier bait. And I was having a lot of issues with that when it first came out, where I was just losing probably 70% of my fish. And I started talking to Seaford about it. And he basically said, Brad, you sharpen your hooks, don't you? And I said, absolutely. He goes, quit sharpening your hooks on your crankbaits. And I will just tell you straight out, my hooking percentage went up to like 95%. So when it comes to Supernatural, it comes to a big hex bait. I don't know that it matters as much, say, on, a, like, a Jake or a Grandma or something like that, but I definitely quit sharpening my big trolling baits that I use in the open water in the spring as well as in the fall, and it definitely h- helped my hooking percentage. Brad, do you still uh, tee those hooks? I do not. I like hook rash. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you like buying baits? <laughs> I, yeah, I like buying baits, and I, I think it looks cool. But, no, you know, ultimately... Uh, I will tee them if you have a really, really wide bait that uh, your hooks are kind of buried behind that bait. I will, a lot of times, I'll tee them, and what I'll do is I'll tip them down just a little bit so that they're away from the body of that bait, just for a better hookup. Yeah, I
1: like the idea of not having to share controlling baits.
2: It's, it's an interesting <laughs> concept. I, I will say... The whole thought process behind it is is plain and simple, one little simple thing. And that is a really sharp hook will elongate that hole as you're fighting that fish, right? That, that fish is giving its head shakes and so on and so forth. And the idea is that a sharp hook will make that hole bigger, quicker than like a dull bait. And no matter what you do, I mean, with your loose drag and everything else, the boat's setting that hook, you're never going to set the hook you know standing there casting like you do when you're trolling and so i i don't know i'm just giving you my two cents on it try it if you're having issues and you're losing fish i definitely encourage you not to sharpen those and i switched out all my hooks that that were sharp and immediately seen a huge difference in hookups
1: i mean go with go with the numbers numbers don't lie right
2: yeah exactly exactly So I have one other question though, you know, Jerome, you were talking about using split rings on all of your, uh, leaders and to your baits and so on and so forth, but how do you manage your line when you put your rod away? How are you managing that?
3: I have about like 30, uh, random split ring or uh, quick snaps laying around my boat. That's that's how I manage that. If you look okay. in any little cup holder, there are going to be like four or five of them laying in the bottom of cup holders. So <laughs> that's, what, that's how I manage that, you know, just having a bunch of those old uh, snaps laying around. And I just put that on the, on the leader quick and then put it on the bait tender, the bait keeper on the, on the rod. Now, it's interesting. I fished with Billy Beekmere a
2: ton back in the day. And uh, unfortunately, he doesn't fish as much as he once did. But he was always a split ring guy, right? He split ring to every bait that he was throwing. What he did it was pretty kind of, it's kind of a cool little deal, but I don't know if you've ever seen those little velcro straps that they're made for cords or whatever, like computer cords. He had a piece okay. right on his foregrip of his rod and what he would do is when he was done fishing, undo the bait and then that leader would lay down there on the foregrip of the rod and he'd velcro it right to the to the blank. Oh,
1: that's good. I kinda do something similar, like I'm fishing mostly nine and nine and a half foot rods now and my boat doesn't hold them in the rod locker, So I put rod socks on everything and I just leave the lot, the leader down to about the real seat. And I just slide a, a rod sleeve on it and just slide right loose. It's not going anywhere at that point, but Jerome leaves a lot of his uh, snap locks in my boat too. So I also
0: have a bunch of them.
2: Yeah, that makes good sense. I, I like that answer. I just was kind of curious because everybody's got a little trick up their sleeve.
0: And I'll ask you guys one quick question. We were talking about, you know, Spring prep and replacing line. How often do you guys replace line? Is that something you do, you know, every season, every spring, a couple times a season? What's your thought process on replacing line?
1: I do any rod that I'm using with clients that throughout the year. I just replace it every year. I mean, it's kind of one of those necessary evils. I've heard people, you know, cut chunk of line off. I've even heard somebody, you know, they spin it on a spool and reverse it and then start over, but. For the most part, for what it is, I don't have much of a worry. I just replace it every year. It's just, we fish, both of us fish different waters. We both do Canada trips a couple times a year. Rocks chew it up. I'm cutting enough of that line off. By the end of the season, most of those schools are starting to look a little low anyway. So it's just, it's a necessary evil for as much as I use. I know these new braids and that, that they make, I mean, they're pretty hardy, but it's it's one of those things like we talked about earlier with the leaders and replacing new every year. I don't want to lose the fish of a lifetime on twenty five dollars to fill up two schools of two two reels with with a spool.
0: The other thing we talk about is a pound test. You know, there's I I see some people buying sixty five. I see some people buying eighty and and hundred. <laughs> I, I myself use, you know, 80 and a hundred. I don't know that I've ever downsized to 65, but I'm also not fishing, you know, early spring with small rattle baits and things like that. You know, what's your thought process on that too? Are you guys mostly 80 pound test guys?
3: Yeah. For the most part of the season, it's 80 pounds on pretty much everything. Uh, I've run some 300 series on some of the medium light rods for basically for spring fishing. Those I'll run 65. Yes, and that's basically one of the, the baits that we found that kind of, if you don't have a, a small enough line for we, run the, we throw like the springtime, we'll throw like the little bastard. Uh, if you have a too heavy leader and like too much of a line weight in the water, it, it will pull that nose of the bait down and kind of make it run a little bit, a little different. And then, too, I like throwing a lot of those. The rabbit, like the rabbit squirrels are another small bucktail I like throwing with, with the 65-pound test. Another thing is I one of those baits that I love tinkering with and, and using and playing around with is uh the slammers, the, the small slammers, like they're five and a half inch slammer, they're square built. That's a fun bait to play with in spring and, and work differently. And I like I like for some reason it, it just for me just watching the bait, I feel like I can I do more with it with sixty five pound tests. I think I can get the you know, using a jerk bait, you know, get that thing to just move a little bit different. But that's when I get past the month of June I basically, it's all 80 pounds for the rest of the year, unless I'll have one of those medium, light, smaller rods for my daughter to grab or a, a younger client to grab. That's about the only time I'll have 65 pounds on anything after the month of June. Yeah, I mean, I, at
1: the same point, I, I have one or two reels spun up with 65, and it's the same thing. It's your single blade super small bucktails in the early season or that little bastard. It seems like the 65 works a little better. Keeps the nose up. But yeah, once, unless we're casting those early in the season, everything I run and I believe drum, we run 80. I've never run anything heavier. Um, Not saying there's anything wrong with it. I just never run anything heavier than 80. So I wouldn't know the difference on that one.
0: I also hear, you know, guys, guys will stick strictly to a hundred pound, like with sucker fishing and things like that. Have you ever broke 80 pounds sucker fishing? I, you know, I hear guys with the, you know, like when you set the hook, all that, uh, that snap on that, on that line can snap it. Is that something you've seen or do you upgrade on sucker fishing?
1: I run 80 on all sucker, sucker stuff. I'm running now. I will say everything I run in both of our boats is all same cry rods. We run that hybrid premier. That's like half glass, half carbon on that rod and. I think that's a bigger deal in late season sucker fishing is that rod not being a super stiff, you know, high composite rod than the line. I've never had an issue with line snapping. I don't think you've ever had any. No. So, I mean, I've heard of rod snapping, you know, and that in super cold conditions, but man, I mean, I've, we've been in some pretty cold conditions sucker fishing and that, those things quite rods, man, those things load up just, just right every
2: time. I really think that, uh, you know, the the heavy line deal is primarily just for the caster. I mean, if, if you're a guy that's getting a ton of backlashes, um, you might want to go to 100 pounds, right? But, you know, that quick snap, if you get a really nasty backlash, that's when your line is normally breaking. I think it's more about that than it is actually the fight of the fish and so on and so forth. I honestly, I just don't think we, as humans, have enough strength and power to to be able to break that line by setting the hook. But that's my two cents. The, the crazy part about that is, is if you think about it, ultimately, <laughs> if you, you have the right rods, you, there's no way you're going to break it setting the hook. It just isn't going to happen.
1: I've heard, you know, I've had some components in that sale too. And it's 99% of Brad, you're completely right. It's usually a backlash. That's the harshest, most violent i think you can do on a line a reel a rod i mean you hear them i mean they can they can snap 80, 80 pound lines you know when you get a good backlash i mean
3: yeah and i would have to argue probably that those people you hear that the line breaks my guess is like they probably tied that leader on once for the fall and now it's probably the last time they tied it on and they've been bouncing around the boat with the treble hooks raking on the line or whatever it looks good but you know a lot of that little micro cuts on there you you put that much stress on it when that's cold that's when it's going to fail i think if you had great knots on it you you're kind of just in the back of your mind retying that every time you think you might have rubbed it on something i don't i don't think you have a problem with 80 pound
2: it's all about human error i would say exactly
0: all right, guys, you know, we've we've covered a few different topics here. We kind of got you on the water now, early season. We've got through the checklist, and let's talk about spring fishing because, you know, it's going to be here very soon for a lot of anglers in our area. You know, the, the Illinois guys, the Kentucky guys, Tennessee, they're already after it, Iowa, Nebraska. They're already, the people out west, I don't, you know, like um, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, I don't know if they ever even slowed down with the way the winter was, so they're already, you know, all past this already but let's talk a little bit about spring in the north woods what type of patterns are you guys looking for and what type of baits are we throwing
1: spring up here the last couple of years have been a little uh, a little different we're gonna i guess it'll be interesting to see how this spring folds out as we've still got you know quite a bit of ice but um you know there's a lot of basic things that you know you can do i mean you're you all depends on what the water comes about as you know when the ice comes off where we're at opening weekend but We're looking at, you know, you can do your stained lakes and that. We try to figure out something a little different. You know, we've done some, you know, shallower clear lakes that are heavily stocked up here. You know, you can find the stocking records and everything. So on the Wisconsin DNR website. So we kind of try some of that. And then um, also uh, I'll let Jerome get into that one a little bit more here. Um, I was going to fill another one that we do both of us actually do with our kids is as the it warms up a little bit is we've got a few lakes here that are just shallow giant weed flats and we actually take the kids out and that we'll throw them in the boat and do some shoreline trolling with some like subsurface I guess you know like the Spanky's Pugsley or like you know one of those style like a body wood tick you know they make those kind of drag those behind shoreline trolling over those shallow weeds and you know find those active fish and you can cover a lot which is it's a a fun pattern not a lot of people do it because you know i mean i don't say i'm ever a troller i mean i'll never claim to be a good troller but it's a fun pattern that's easy for you know somebody to figure out you're running it high in the water column so you're not worried about following up a lot you know you're not worried about hitting break lines that you're just kind of shoreline trolling right on the tops of those weeds and those fish can be you know cruising around as Especially in springtime, you're always having you know different species of fish that are floating in and floating out in their spawning
3: cycles. Yeah, a lot of those lakes that we fish that are like that are just giant, like you said, giant wheat bowls. You know, after those fish go up and spawn, they pull off and they could just be anywhere in these giant carriage flats you know, and just like you can go and cast them and be efficient doing that, but it's also fun just to run over them with some trolling baits and like you were saying, we use those those high riding crankbaits or excuse me, uh, bucktails and stuff. And that's another one of those baits that I like to tinker around with. i built some of my own floating kind of bucktails and stuff that have been really good producers over the years, just kind of doing that, you know, weight them down heavy. So you can still run them at three, three and a half and just go right over top of that cabbage. That's, you know, a foot, foot and a half down. And you're sitting in, you know, anywhere from three to six, eight feet water. It's kind of a I I don't know if I've ever seen anybody else doing it on the water other than us. So it's kind of one of those things that it's kind of nice to go out and, and do those kind of things and be so, be, do something different, you know, after everybody's been just pounding those shell flats with crankbaits and bucktails and top water, you know, all weekend long.
2: So when you guys are doing this, are you using an electric motor? Are you using the big motor, kicker, whatever you might have? Um, are you using it that way? What kind of speeds are we talking? What's the setup look like?
3: Yeah, for service of the setup is reason the big motor. Usually, those flat cabbage flats haven't developed enough that they're choking out your motor and like you know building up on this on your prop. You can get through them pretty decent with with your your big motor or kicker. Uh, yeah, like so. when our setup is we're running usually on. I'll have a, a board on one side, and then you know in Wisconsin we can only have two lines, or what's Excuse me, one line per person. Uh, some some areas it's only two lines per boat. Some areas you can have up to three uh, three lines per boat, but uh, depending on how many people you have, you, home, you can only have one one line per person. So if you only got two people in the boat, you can only have two lines in some of those areas. If you have a third person, you can have that third line, but nothing more. Um, but a lot of times it's a, a board a side rod. You can't even use a down rod because that's you, you're the tip of the rods going to be around through the cabbage. So it's all on the sides and the speed like you said is i'm going between three to three and a half is kind of what i do um a lot of that speed wise is depending on the baits i'm using like i said i'm using those kind of high rising bucktails and i like to, to run it just where those bucktails are starting to boil the surface that seems to be the best kind of producer for us and just go along those breaks and you can try to get up as shallow as you can and just kind of move in and out uh Sometimes the fish will be on the the outer edge of them. Sometimes they'll be up up shallow, and this is a great way to try to kind of find them. Usually when you find them, you can kind of replicate that, because, like, the few lakes that we do it on, it's basically weeds all the way around the lake. And it's, like, three casts wide is how deep these weeds are, weeds flat. So if you can go, if you can troll, I mean, we can, those lakes are small, so you can troll around it in 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes, and you can just, go in shallow, go out a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper, leap in, and really cover the lake in a matter of two hours, um, trolling, you know, you had it basically beat to a pulp of the whole wheat flat around the whole lake. Instead of trying to cast that, I think you'd just be more productive that, that way with, with presenting the baits like that.
2: Absolutely. Are you spending any time marking the weed edge with your uh,
3: GPS at all? Yeah, we will do that. Um, a lot of these lakes, I already have the weed line, you know, already marked, but it, it'd be a, you know, a good idea. Like if you want to start doing that, especially if somebody's going up to that lake and like, I don't really know much about the lake a lot of these lakes that we do this on, it don't have any contours. They're just, you pull them up on your map and it'll just be a, a blue blob. So like using your zero lines, chip and going out and you can, you know, GPS and and mark that whole thing while you're trolling is very beneficial. You can find all those weed points and mark it. It's a great great thing to do for a few hours and really learn the lake and just pull baits over the top of fish.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's something that uh, is going to help you for casting later on as well. I mean, if you're learning those weed beds, it's definitely a a tool to be able to
3: accomplish two tasks at one time
1: exactly exactly
3: and a lot of times when you when you finally find those fish a lot of times those fish are just sitting in a certain type of weed clump that are you know, for some reason that year developed cabbage or red cabbage clump inside of all this green cabbage they'll just be sitting in there and that's an easy way to find those in gps them. you know you just keep watching as you're driving you'll see like oh there's some red cabbage next thing you know your your rod goes off so it's a great way to just search those lakes and just learn them I can speak to the other, so the the other pattern we have is kind of a unique one to the northwoods. I kind of stumbled on it a couple of years ago. it's It's a great little pattern to get away from the people because everybody comes up for opening weekend or a month of June and does the stained water shallow and then also you know you can you can move off once those those fish already has spawn and post spawn and move off into the open water and follow them around with your electronics that way. But another one that I kind of do to get away from the crowd, especially on your busy weekends in, in the months of June, is Northern Wisconsin has a bunch of these small, tiny little clear lakes that are basically just bowls. Not a whole lot of internal structure to them. They're not mapped. So you'll go out on them, and there won't be any contour maps on them. And a lot, of, I, don't, I find, like, a lot of people just don't even go out on them because there's not a huge number of muskies in them. But if you go onto the DNR webpage and look up their, their stocking records and stuff, and you'll see that they're stocking they're, These fisheries are basically completely, you know, fully stocked there. There's no reproduction production happening. So it's all stocking based and, but they're deep and clear and have no weeds. And what we found is during the month of June, a lot of these lakes will have some shell cribs or even a lot of them will have down trees. And those fish that are just normally all the time just suspended out in the basin because there is no structure will pull up in those trees when the crappies and stuff are spawning. And so basically is what we'll do is we'll find the shoreline where all the crappies are spawning at, and you go down there and just work those trees just, you know, work really thoroughly. Don't just go by them at mile, mile and a half with your trolling motor and just hit the tips of them. Like take 10, 15 casts into these trees and really work them. And what you do is you'll just pull some fish that are just hanging out there waiting for, you know, their, their next crappie meal, hanging out there. So, and a lot of times you'll, you'll go down past them and work those treetops down the shoreline and you'll see because they're, they're clear lakes, you can see all the crappies in there spawning. But then if you didn't get any, any luck doing that, turn that boat around and go down that same path, but cast out to open water. Because a lot of the times those muskies will just pull into those treetops and then pull off a cast length and just wait and then go pull back in when they want to feed again. And you can pull up those neutral fish that are cast away just by going down that same pass, casting the, off the, the deep side of the boat out to open water. Yeah, and we've actually even had
1: fish on those when you start casting that cast on the other side is those muskies know that those fish are transitioning those bait fish like crappie bluegill map they're transitioning in and out as well. So they can sit right on that break line with that transition point where those fish are coming back out to open water and it's, they're, they're waiting for their next meal. So, and usually it seems like those ones that are sitting on that break line are the bigger, bigger fish and sometimes the more active fish. They're kind of just waiting for a good meal to come through. They're not going to exert a bunch of force, fighting other fish way up in the treetops and that, that first break can sometimes be a a great spot to find that one big fish that's roaming around in these little lakes that are mostly overlooked. Do
2: you guys spend any time trolling any of that? And you kind of made mention that you guys don't do a lot of trolling. I'm just kind of curious in the open water.
1: We both have Jerome probably does more than I do. We've both learned that we're, we're working on our trolling. Our kids have become our best trolling, uh, trainers. Um, in Wisconsin, you can only have one. And good news is, is all of our kids love fishing and love being out on the boat. So we're, we're getting better, you know, and we're working on it a lot more. Um, it's, it's still, you know, it's for me, it's, it's a learning curve. It's definitely productive because there's, there's nobody up here doing it. I mean, I don't know if I've, other than, you know, you go up to a big lake when the Cisco spawn's going on, you don't really see people trolling out here. But drone can kind of hit on more of the uh, –
3: the actual trolling that he does yeah so like dj said like you just don't see anybody doing it and i think one of the reasons you don't is on some of these small lakes like where i was just talking about where you're so some of those fish are open water just off of the you know the structure but you're talking about a fish in such a small little area that you're gonna get bored after about half an hour of going down turning around coming back going down turning around coming back and i think that's a driver for some people that they just don't do it. And I get, well, I know I'll get bored with it if I'm going to throw some of those small lakes. It's just, you can throw the same pass. If you go around the lake in 10, 15 minutes, you know, you're on that same pass. Uh, so I think that's a big driver of why some of these people in the Northern Wisconsin don't do it, but that's on the smaller lakes. But it, we do, I do utilize it, you know, at certain times of year on the, on the bigger lakes, especially like I said, in the fall when that some of these bigger lakes that have Cisco, I'll go out there and troll late in the fall, you know, doing that. And like I said, I'm just kind of learning. What was it? Five years ago, six years ago, when they legalized it in northern Wisconsin, something like that. Maybe it's longer. I can't remember exactly. But so it's 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 a learning curve for me. I kind of want to figure it out because I think there's a there's definitely um, fish to be caught doing that up here, just because nobody does it, and it's in, and you can get away from people doing it. Jerome has caught a 50
1: trolling in northern Wisconsin, which I, I don't know how many people can hang their hat on that one.
3: <laughs> yeah, that was a kind of like a late summer. It was kind of a, if you want to talk about a fun story, that's a great story, Fish. It was actually, we got some friends that have a pontoon on one of these Cisco Lakes. in One of our... Late summer, kind of, or even during the summer, we do it a little bit. We don't have as much luck luck during the middle of summer as a lot of times. It comes in the late fall when those ciscos are starting to ball up. As We'll just take the kids out after work one evening, get a pizza, take the kids out, put a movie on the boat with the an iPad, and go troll around these cisco balls. And that's how we caught it. We were just trolling around kids. I can't even remember the, the movie they were watching. But <laughs> my buddy always brings a big speaker, and, like, the music is just blaring kids are screaming and and uh we caught that 50 inch I, I would have thought it would never have worked out but we've caught a couple of fish since then not doing that same pattern. so it's pretty fun doing that
2: yeah it definitely sounds like something that needs to be explored a little bit more i know like uh jason Sloan from bad fish he used to do a ton of row trawling up in that neck of the woods and and he caught a lot of big walleyes doing that as well, but uh, definitely a pattern that I think should be exposed a little bit more for you guys.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's what's kind of funny because I think we're in that transition period as well. So, you know, the road trollers are like the old salty guys that are out here that, you know, did it and that's what they did. And when they opened up, you know, motorized trolling, I think it kind of threw a spike into that, you know, it kind of split a lot of people where, you know, your road trollers kind of felt like they got outgunned and, a lot of guys were that were power trolling and that, you know, they just, it wasn't their game. So it kind of just fell to the wayside on both ends.
2: Jeff, you, you spend some time open water trolling though. I do a little
0: bit, not a lot. It's funny cause Jerome kind of hit on it. Like the one thing about Northern Wisconsin is some of these lakes are small now granted there are some big ones you can find, but a lot of them are small and the trolling game gets a tad boring after a little while. Cause like you said, you are only hitting, you know, so many spots. I got, one in particular that, uh, it'll literally be like about an eight minute troll down and an eight minute troll back. And you know, they're, when they're out in open water, it's great. But when you're not catching them, it's pretty boring.
2: I can definitely relate. I mean, I could understand that, right? I mean, if you're on a smaller body of water, you would get bored. But now if you're a roll troller, uh, that small lake might be your friend. Oh, exactly I, yeah
0: absolutely i i mean i used to do that first of all to just try to cover like you're almost like you're trying to cover less water right there because you're hoping to like run into one that's in a smaller area because of how hard you have to work to row troll i've been meaning to dig up a road troller for this podcast for a couple of years now i think one of these days we need to do it just to you know go down the history side of it
1: we got a buddy that was pretty big into it you know he's he's not an old old salty dog but he's he's in his 50s thirties. He, he got into it pretty big. I mean, he's got the road troller to this day yet, but he still rocks. But, yeah, I don't know how much he does now that, you know, you can power it.
0: Well, I mean, the plus side is with road trolling, and you can still run three lines if you're road troll.
1: Oh, I didn't yeah. really know that.
0: As long as you're not, you know, actually motor trolling, I, I think you can still run it, right? As far as I know, everything's legal there. that's
1: that's
3: uh, that's a question i'm not going to answer yes or no because i do not know i I believe yeah you're right i mean if you're under your own you know power not being propelled by any type of uh motorized thing i believe that's how the the rule book states that you can you can have three lines in wisconsin
0: yep i'm pretty sure that you still can i mean you might want to consult the regulations before you can and somebody will probably send me an email that you says that you can but i'm fairly positive if you're road trolling you can still run three out there these days that's a little bit of incentive. I mean, a little bit, but I got to tell you, I've road trolled. It's, it's a lot of work. There's no doubt. I think I'd rather throw pounders all day.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> all right, guys, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to talk musky fishing with us. We really very much appreciate you. I mean, I mean, I know that, you know, it still is winter in northern Wisconsin, but you're still taking time out of doing something other than, you know, hanging out with Brad and I. So we appreciate that. So thanks for coming out.
1: I appreciate uh, the opportunity for both you guys. And, uh, yeah, like I said, we're just uh, looking forward to open water. Soon enough, we won't have to be sitting here staring at
0: snow and ice. And one last time, if anybody's looking to get in touch with you guys, what's the best way to go about doing that?
1: Uh, You can uh, reach out on the website at hinterlandmuskyguides.com. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and that. Or uh, my number direct
3: is 704-658-5230 or Jerome. Yeah, my number is 715-892-3847.
0: All right, guys. Thank you very much for coming out and talking with us. We want to thank all of our listeners for putting up with us for the episode, and we will see everybody again with a new one next week, Wednesday.